Turn to Acts 21. Wave at Jim if you need a Bible. We have a lot to cover this morning. We've been following Paul these past several weeks as he wraps up his third missionary journey, as he makes his way back to Jerusalem, accompanied by a group of, of representatives from the various Gentile churches conveying the offering that Paul has been taking up among the Gentile churches back to Jerusalem. And Paul's plan, we've noted several times, we started noting it all the way back in Romans, Paul's plan was to go to Jerusalem, drop off the offering, celebrate Pentecost, and then head back out first to Rome, all the way over on the left of the map, and then to Spain, which isn't even on the map. Things don't go quite according to plan. And as we saw last week when we were wrapping up chapter 21, the Holy Spirit has been warning Paul along the way, warning at several points along the way. Things weren't going to go quite according to Paul's plan. When we left off, in fact, the Holy Spirit was warning Paul through the prophet Agabus quite dramatically. Chapter 21, verse 11, Paul being warned that in Jerusalem he'd be bound and handed over for the sake of the gospel. Which provokes the obvious question, then why did he go? Paul understood the Holy Spirit wasn't warning him to discourage him, to prevent him from going. No, the Holy Spirit wasn't warning him to discourage him, but to prepare him for what was waiting. So with all of that as background, just a quick refresher how we got where we are. We pick up Paul's story this morning, Acts 21, verse 15. After those days, those days with the fellowship in Caesarea, we packed up and went to Jerusalem, 50, 60 miles or so from Caesarea. South as you go down the map, but we remember we always go up to Jerusalem because it's a city on a hill. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea, verse 16, went with us and brought with them a certain nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge, with whom we were going to lodge when we got to Jerusalem. It's a decently big group at this point. It's Paul, it's Luke, who's, who's still with them. He drops off in a little while, but right now he's still saying us and we, so he's there. The representatives from the Gentile churches in Asia and beyond, these disciples that they picked up in, in Caesarea, this guy, Nason, who Luke says was an early disciple, and that word early means really early. It's, it's an emphatic early. Possible, we don't know for sure, he could have been someone converted at Pentecost. But regardless, why is this group going with them? I mean, Paul and the rest of them, they're on a mission and they have been for a while. Why, is, why are the, the, the gang from Caesarea joining in? Not sure. Simplest explanation is, is probably just Eastern hospitality. They didn't just give directions, you know, take this road until you get to that road, and when you get to this fork, you go this way, not... Th no, they, they went with them, because that was Eastern tradition. To, to convey someone, to take someone where they're going, and make arrangements for them once they get there, arrange for them to be welcomed and housed and so forth. It's, it's something that, that we try to reflect here in our own ministries. Um, we remind each other, especially when we do big events, hey, if someone is asking for something, don't tell them, show them. So verse 17, when we'd come to Jerusalem, when we traveled the 50 or 60 miles, the brethren received us gladly. 
the brethren, the church. These are probably friends of Nason. Maybe it's a, a home church that met in his house. It's some informal group that initially greeted them. But on the following day, verse 18, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. So this is a more formal gathering. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who we've seen before was the head of the church of Jerusalem, along with other elders. Which is interesting, because the last time Paul was in Jerusalem, eight years earlier, we read about it in Acts chapter 15, he met with the elders and apostles. But there's no mention of apostles here. Where were the apostles? The answer is that they'd gone to the missions field. And scripture doesn't tell us much about where they went, but church tradition and some extra biblical historical sources, uh, we, we know that Andrew, for example, headed to Greece and Turkey and then ended up in what today is Russia. Philip spent time in Asia Minor, and it's not on the map, but we think ultimately ended up in Carthage in North Africa. Bartholomew had ministry in Armenia and then India. Matthew in Persia and Ethiopia. Thomas ends up in India. I've actually been to a, a, a place where they, they mark where Thomas made landfall in India, and they celebrate him for bringing the gospel to India. James, son of Alphaeus, ministered in Syria. James, son of Zebedee, was already dead at this point. He was executed in Acts 12 by Herod. Simon the Zealot, we've got good evidence that he ministered in Egypt. There is some tradition he made it all the way to the British Isles, but that's, that's a maybe. Thaddeus in what we would call Iran in modern Turkey. Peter, we know, was in Rome. John, Ephesus, and then Patmos, none of which has anything to do with the text Except to say in 49 AD, there were apostles still in Jerusalem eight years later, 57 AD or so. It's James and elders that the Lord had raised up leading the church. The apostles had gone to share the gospel. When he, verse 19, when he, Paul, had greeted them, James and the elders, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Notice it's not what Paul has done. He's not saying, hey guys, look what we did. No, this is what God did as we were obedient, as we traveled, as we served. Paul wasn't about to take the credit. But at the same time, he wanted the church in Jerusalem to know what was happening in the Gentile world as he had traveled all over the place. James and those serving with him had seen many, many, many Jews come to faith because that was their context. They were ministering in Jerusalem. They had less firsthand experience with the explosion that was happening in the Gentile world, and Paul wanted to share that praise with them. When they heard it, verse 20, they glorified the Lord, as we should, as I hope we do every time someone is saved from death to life. And they said to him, the leaders of the Jerusalem church said to Paul, we're really glad that that's happening. I mean, praise God that that's happening, Paul. But it does bring up one small problem. You see, brother, verse 20, how many myriads of Jews, lots and lots of Jews have believed, and they're all zealous for the law, which is okay, except for this one thing. They've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, those that you meet out there on the missions field, we hear, they hear, you're telling them to forsake Moses. 
to blow off the law of Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor walk according to the customs. Paul, there are rumors, and everyone's heard them. The word informed, verse 21, suggests more than just casual, it suggests a propaganda campaign. The story's out there, and it's been drilled into everybody's head. That you're going around telling Jews to stop following Moses, to stop following the law, and Paul, that's a problem. Now, our first reading, our first impulse when we read that might be, where's the problem? What's the, what's the, we're not under the law. Moses delivered the law, but Jesus fulfilled the law. So what are we talking about here? The law... We read in Romans and before that we read in Galatians, the law was our tutor, right? The law was our teacher. And its purpose was to show we couldn't keep it. The purpose of the law was to show us we couldn't keep the law. How many times did we talk about that in Romans? The purpose of the law was to tell us we couldn't earn righteousness, we had to receive righteousness, which meant we needed forgiveness, which meant that we needed grace. We needed the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God, to accomplish in us what the law never could. So why are these Jewish Christians mad at Paul? Answer, they liked their traditions. They were attached to their customs and the temple and the ordinances and the sacrifices and the rest of the Mosaic system. And they were attached to it at a time of rising persecution at the hands of Rome. So, so on the one hand, they're, they're attached to their tradition, and on the other hand, they're feeling like their identity as a people is being threatened by outsiders. And they misunderstood Paul's message. Because they thought that Paul was saying the temple and the sacrifices and the ordinances and all the rest weren't okay. Paul never said, and it's important that we get this or we won't understand anything that comes after. Paul never said observing the customs of the law wasn't okay. Paul taught that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law because he was. Paul taught the law was not necessary to be saved because it's not. Circumcision, for example, comes up a lot. And every time it comes up, Paul makes clear it's not a requirement for salvation. Galatians 5 is maybe the, the flagship passage where Paul says, trusting in circumcision, making that a requirement, you've got to be circumcised so you can be Jewish and you have to be Jewish so that you can become Christian. Making circumcision a requirement for salvation makes the whole law a requirement. You, you, can't, you can't separate it out. And then we're off to the races, because it's impossible to keep the whole law. That was Paul's whole point with Titus. That was Paul's whole reason for going to Jerusalem eight years earlier. The law cannot be, must not be, cannot be in any way, shape, or form construed as a requirement for salvation. But all of that said, and Paul said it a lot, right? he still didn't think circumcision was a sin. In fact, Acts 16, he has Timothy circumcised. Why? 
We talked about it when we were there. If circumcision is part of the Old Covenant, it's, it's part of the law, and if, what's the point? The point is, some were still really attached to those customs, and Paul didn't want that to get in the way of the Gospel. He had Sir Timothy circumcised because his mom was Jewish, and people would wonder, well, why aren't you Jewish? And Paul didn't want the distraction. He knew if they were out on the missions field talking about circumcision, that the, the, the time that they were talking about that was time they weren't talking about Jesus, and he wanted to talk about Jesus. So if people wanted to continue in the tradition of the law, Paul writes to the Romans, just, just let them. They'll figure it out in time, or not. It doesn't hurt anything, except other believers, Romans 14, verse 1, except other believers who are weak in faith. Don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. That's New Living Translation, because it's more straightforward. New King James Paul says, don't dispute over doubtful things, like diet or Sabbath-keeping, or circumcision. First, First Corinthians 8, Paul says even earlier, and I'm, and I'm posting New Living Translation again. But Paul says, we know idols are nothing. They don't amount to anything. And then that means that meat sacrifice to idols doesn't amount to anything. But if someone is new, if someone is weak in the faith, if they're hung up on that, don't you get hung up on that. Don't let your liberty stumble weaker brothers and sisters. And of course, we talk about Christian liberty a lot in connection with things like dress and haircuts and baptism and tattoos and cremation. But back to verse 21, Paul wasn't telling anyone, you can't do anything that looks like, feels like, smells like, in any way resembles the law of Moses. He wasn't saying that. He wasn't instructing people, no, you can't circumcise your children anymore. What he was saying was, you can do that stuff if it's important to you. Just understand, it can't save. It can't deliver you from sin. You can't get to holiness that way. And if, but if you don't do those things, it can't keep you from being saved either. But here's the thing, Satan's a liar. Satan is the father of lies, right? And so he knows... What we know, he knows better than we know, the best lies have what? Some element of truth. So in coming against Paul, which obviously he was, he's trying to destroy Paul's ministry, or at least limit Paul's ministry, Satan had seen to it that this lie, this story, this, this fabrication, had reached Jerusalem ahead of him, and had stirred people up, so there was opposition waiting for him. So what? Verse 21, this is James and the, the other elders talking. What are we going to do? I mean, the assembly must certainly meet, for they'll hear that you've come. There's no way to keep your presence in Jerusalem a secret, Paul. Not that Paul would want to. But they're saying, how do, how do we keep this lie from exploding? How do we keep this from destroying your ministry in Jerusalem? More importantly, how do we keep this from, from validating this, this gross misrepresentation of the gospel? Tell you what, verse 23. Here's what we're going to do, Paul. Do what we tell you. We've got a plan. We've got four men who have taken a vow. And this is almost certainly a Nazarite vow that we read about in Numbers chapter 6. A vow of consecration, separation unto the Lord. And certain things were specifically off limits during that time of consecration. Fruit of the vine, wine, grapes, raisins, any of it. Touching anything dead or unclean, even if it was a family member. 
and, and let your hair grow. Don't cut your hair during this time. We think of the Nazarite vow, if we, if, if we think of it, which probably we don't a lot, but if we think about the Nazarite vow, we probably think about it in connection with Samson and Samuel, who took a Nazarite vow for life. But if we look at Scripture, that's actually the exception, not the rule. More commonly, a Nazarite vow was for a period of time. And history tells us it was typically like 30 days. 30 days of, of, of being given over to thanksgiving. 30 days of, of being set apart for intercession. The point is, this comes right out of the book of Numbers. comes right out of the book of the law. This was a very Jewish thing. It was a tradition under the law of Moses which the elders in Jerusalem realized could be an opportunity for Paul to demonstrate his Jewishness, his respect for Jewish tradition. Here's the plan, verse 24. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. Keep the law might have been a stretch. There's plenty of evidence that Paul didn't keep the law meticulously, and not that he needed to. But respect the law, esteem the law, not be an enemy of the law. Sure, that was absolutely Paul. Paul had a high view of the law. We get confused about that because he says things like he says in Romans 3.20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. And that's true. But Paul said just as often, things like he says in Romans 7, is the law sin? Certainly not. The law is holy in the commandment, holy and just and good. Again, the law can't save. I think we're all clear on that. But that doesn't mean the law doesn't reflect God's holiness and righteousness. And that's where Paul and the elders found agreement. Paul, we know that you know that the law is good. And we understand that you teach that the law is good. Here's an opportunity for you to demonstrate that, for you to put legs to that, for you to model that. Tell these four young men you'll pay their expenses, the expenses associated with the end of the Nazarite vow, which would be a big tab. The end of the Nazarite vow, number six, tells us that the offerings included a sin offering of a you. And not just any you, it had to be a you without blemish. A burnt offering of a lamb also without blemish. And a peace offering of a ram also without blemish and also with unleavened bread and wine and some, some other things. So you take all of that, an unblemished you, an unblemished lamb, an unblemished ram times four, because there's four of them. That's a big investment, which they're hoping would be enough to convince anyone that Paul doesn't hate the law. Meanwhile, hey, for our part, James and the others say, we'll take the opportunity to remind people, verse 25, that concerning the Gentiles who believe, we've written and decided, we've said this before, that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. That was the outcome of the Jerusalem Council eight years earlier. Yeah, you're not under the law, but, but could you refrain from doing things that look like idol worship? That was the outcome of the, of the Jewish Council in, in, in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. 
Paul will remind people that Gentiles are free from the law. You participate in the ceremony and show that you think that Jews are free to observe the law and, and everyone goes home happy is the plan. And Paul agrees to this, which shouldn't surprise us in light of everything he's said in the past. It also shouldn't surprise us in light of the fact that back in Acts 18, we read that Paul had taken a vow himself. I didn't put the verse on the screen because that's literally all I've said. It's Paul took a vow. But most of all, it shouldn't surprise us in light of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 9. Though I'm free from all men and the law, Paul means, I've made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win the more for the sake of the gospel. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to Jesus. To those who were under the law is under the law, that I might win those who were under the law with the gospel. To those who are without law is without law, not being without law toward God, but under the law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law, that I might share Jesus with the Gentiles. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. This I do for the gospel's sake. And this is an example of that. To the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, as under the law. Hey, I'll, I'll, I'll go along with the traditions and the customs of the law if it gives me an opportunity to share Jesus with people who follow the law. And I wonder, this is just me speculating, I wonder if Paul didn't have in mind, you know, when those three offerings happen, those three offerings that I'm going to pay for, the burn offering, the sin offering, the peace offering, I wonder if Paul wasn't saying, I'm going to take an opportunity to tell them how each of those anticipates the cross of Jesus. Because they do. Every feast, every sacrifice anticipates the cross of Jesus. Sometimes we'll celebrate a Passover Seder here. Very analogous thing. It's an ordinance... Passover dinner, it's an ordinance under the law. Are we required to do it? No. Do we sometimes do it? Yeah. For what purpose? To point out how every element of it anticipates the cross. Then Paul, verse 26, took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So this isn't the ceremony itself. This is the ceremony before the ceremony. This is the preliminary. Question, why did Paul need to be purified with them? Answer, I, I don't know. It could be, he was, could be he was jumping in with them, saying, hey, I took a Nazarite vow when I was out in the missions field, and the 30 days ended and I cut my hair, but I, I never did the peace offering. So, hey, as long as you're doing it, I'll do it with you. That's possible. It could also be that Paul was returning from Gentile lands. He was returning from having lived and, and spent time among and eaten with Gentiles. That would make him ceremonially unclean. So maybe Paul is saying, look, that some, someone's going to get fastidious about that, so I'll just play by the rules of the temple. Either way, when the seven days were almost ended, verse 27, time leading up to the big ceremony, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law of this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they'd previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. 
group of Jews from the province of Asia, not Asia the continent, but Asia the Roman province, um, probably from Ephesus, recognized Paul. Makes sense, he lived there for three years. They recognized Trophimus because he was from there, and they assumed that Trophimus was one of the men who saw Paul going into the, that they saw going into the temple with Paul. Which made no sense. Gentiles weren't allowed past the outer courts. That's the court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go beyond that. In fact, there was a sign marking the boundary saying any Gentile who attempts to cross that line would be killed. And that was such a serious thing, the Romans let them do it. The Romans had taken capital punishment from the Jews, but in this case, they allowed Jews to carry out capital punishment even if the offender was a Roman citizen. That's what a big deal this was. Point being, it wouldn't make sense that Trophimus could possibly be one of the people that they saw with Paul. He would have been dragged away and killed. But what's the Mark Twain line? A lie makes it halfway around the world while the truth is still lacing up its boots? Paul brought a Gentile into the inner courts. There were people who wanted that to be true. They liked that story, even if it was a story, because if they could convince people that was true, well, then everything else that everybody said was about Paul was true. That he was, verse 28, an enemy of the Jewish people, an enemy of the temple, an enemy of the law. All of which would be particularly inflammatory at, at this particular time. Because why is everyone in Jerusalem? Why is Paul in Jerusalem? Pentecost. And while Pentecost had begun as a harvest celebration... By Paul's day, it had come to be associated with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. The idea was Pentecost 50 days after Passover, 50 days after the first Passover, was the giving of the law. Point being, they pours gasoline on the fire. Everyone is there to celebrate the giving of the law. And Paul, some are saying, is trampling on the law. I don't think that's what Paul was thinking about, though. If Paul was thinking at all at this point, and not just you know, reacting or praying, I'm guessing Paul noticed the irony. There's a crowd coming after him, accusations being levied against him. And it was the same kind of a crowd, and it was the exact same expectations uh, or accusations that another crowd made against Stephen a crowd that Paul was a part of. Accusations they made against Stephen right before they killed him. But if Paul had time to think about that, he didn't have a lot of time. Verse 30, all the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. Either because the priests didn't want him killed in the temple, they didn't want to defile the temple, or they didn't want Paul to try to seek sanctuary. They didn't want to have to choose. Either way, they're saying, look, if you're going to do this, do this somewhere else. If you're going to kill him, kill him the way that we killed Stephen, outside the city walls. Kill him the way that we killed Jesus, outside the city gates. Now, as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in uproar. And, and the news didn't have far to travel. The Antonia Fortress, this, this garrison that Luke is talking about, actually overlooked the temple. You can see it there. The rank commander would be someone over 600 to 1,000 troops. So this was what the Romans called a cohort. 
I think in our vernacular it would be what, a battalion? So the CO of the battalion, who was the most senior Roman official in Jerusalem, if the governor wasn't there, hears there's a riot happening. He takes soldiers and centurions, verse 32, and runs down to them. A centurion was nominally in charge of 100 men. Sometimes it was closer to 60, but centurions, plural, there's 100, 200 guys. The, the, the commander says, okay, there's a riot happening. We're going to meet this with overwhelming force. And the show of force worked when they saw the commander and the soldiers. Verse 32, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. Notice the fulfillment of the prophecy of Agabus. Agabus said that Paul would be bound like a dangerous criminal, which the commander was assuming Paul was. Binds Paul like a criminal and says, what are you doing? Who are you? What have you done? What is all of this about? And he's asking the other people, he's asking the crowd, why, why are you being the way that you are? The problem is there wasn't just one story. Verse 34, some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he, the commander, could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded Paul be taken into the barracks, where he could interrogate him, maybe torture him, because obviously the crowd wasn't going to help. When he reached the stairs, he had to be carried they had to kind of crowd surf Paul by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying out, away with him. As in, do away with him. As in, kill him. Why? What has them so incredibly angry? Angry to the point of bloodthirsty. To answer that, let's ask, what did they think was being threatened? What was it that they believed in? What were they clinging to? They said three things back in verse 28, the people, the law, and the temple. But what was the big one? What, was, what, what did all of it revolve around? What was the threat that the elders identified back in 21? The law. Paul, you're going against the law of Moses. And in a sense, he was, but not in the way that they thought. They were thinking food, Sabbath, circumcision. But what really threatened the law? Jesus and grace. What does grace stand for? God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace threatens the law. Which is why Satan has a perverse love for the law. That seems backward, but the law condemns, and Satan likes that, because condemnation separates us from God. The law condemns, and with just a little help, the law either convinces us that we're saved when we're lost, like the Pharisees. They were convinced that they were great in God's eyes because of the law. Or... With a little bit of a twist, the law convinces us that we're hopelessly lost and forever condemned and completely without hope. Either way, Satan wins. Satan likes the law because he can use it. But he hates grace. He hates the undeserved favor that God ministers through Jesus. Why? Because grace does what Satan despises. Grace saves. Satan uses the law and hates grace. Here's the problem. Satan's not the only one with an affinity for the law. 
Our flesh loves some law. Why? Because it seems to offer a way for us to work, for us to earn, for us to suffer and strive and pay for our own salvation. And we really want to believe that's possible, don't we? We want to believe that we can be strong enough, good enough, holy enough, sanctified enough to somehow save ourselves. So much so that throughout Paul's ministry, we see Judaizers creeping into the church, creeping in amongst people who have been saved by grace, lured away from the pure gospel to a corrupted gospel, to a gospel that says you're saved by grace, but... You're saved by grace, but you first need to be pre-qualified by your works. You have to become Jewish, get circumcised, come under the law. Then you can be saved. Or you can be saved by grace, but then you need to be kept by works. Jesus saved you, and that's fantastic, but from here on out, it's up to you. He got you where you are, but you need to keep yourself there. Or Gentiles can be saved by grace, but Israel, Israel has to be saved by works. And you can find all three of those beliefs and, and hundreds of variations of them taught in churches all around the world today. Churches who have bought into this lie of the enemy. Best way to lie is to tell some of the truth. So, so churches will agree, yeah, the grace is a thing, but it can't stand alone. Somewhere in the equation, Grace must be joined with works. You, you, have, you can have your grace, but you've got to earn it too. Now that might sound heady and abstract and all theological. Let's take it down to street level. What does this mean to us? If grace alone isn't enough, if God's favor at some point has to be joined with good works to, be, uh, in a, to take effect, think of the implications. Pra not, not theolog practical implications. If great, first one, if grace alone isn't enough, if forgiveness needs grace plus works to complete it, then I can't be sure that I'm forgiven for my sin, which means I can't forgive myself for my sin. Because I can't know if I've added enough works to the cross. I can't be sure that I've suffered enough, paid enough to forgive myself. I need to keep beating myself up. How long? Maybe indefinitely, if grace isn't enough. Here's another one. If grace alone isn't enough for my forgiveness, then grace isn't enough for their forgiveness. Them over there. Not Dakota and Abby, but just, you know, over there. <laughs> People who sinned against me. If grace isn't enough, I've got a righteous basis for not forgiving them because how do I know they're sorry enough? Third one, if grace isn't enough, then there's no way to know if I'm holy enough to stand before God without offending him a whole lot. And that's a slippery slope because eventually I'm going to convince myself I can't serve, I can't go to church, I can't take communion, I can't pray, I can't face God in any way because I just don't know if I've done enough, if I've made myself holy enough to please Him. One more, and it's the obvious one. If grace isn't enough, I can never be sure that I'm going to heaven. Jesus died for my sin and that's awesome, but if His blood wasn't enough, 
I've got no way of knowing when or if my works are going to be enough to make up the difference. And here's the thing. If you're still thinking, well, that's hypothetical and theoretical and theological. and I've heard people say every one of those things. In this room, I can't forgive myself because I haven't suffered enough. I can't forgive them. They're not sorry enough. I can't face God. I'm not holy enough. I can't know that I'm saved because Jesus just isn't enough. I've heard people say every one of those things and variations of those things in this room. Which every time it happens is shocking, but at the same time, every time it happens, it's not surprising. Because there's a part of us that wants it to be true. We want to be the main characters in the story of our lives. Whether we're the hero or the villain, it almost doesn't matter. We want our lives to be about us. We want to stand alone in the spotlight. And so we struggle with grace. Because grace demands that we step aside and put the spotlight on Jesus. And our flesh hates that. Our flesh is happy to have Jesus as a supporting character. You know, he's over there off to one side, helping us live our best lives today, helping us get what we know we deserve, giving us that last little nudge that we need to get to heaven as long as we stay in the spotlight. As the story, as long as the story of our lives stays always and only about us. But think what happens when we realize what a dead end that is. Think about what happens when when mercifully we remember that our salvation is about grace and always about grace and only about grace, that Jesus paid it all, period. No, no, no. Jesus paid it all, exclamation point. And the hero of our lives isn't us at all. The hero of our lives is him, and the story of our lives should be the story of grace. Verse 19. It's the story that Paul told, the story of what God had done. When we realize it's all about grace, we can know and know that we know that we know that we're going to heaven because his death was sufficient. Saved by grace, kept by grace. How much bandwidth does that free up in our minds and in our hearts when we don't have to worry about that? when we can rest in knowing that the, the, the fact that my works weren't enough to get me into heaven means that my works can't be enough to keep me out of heaven. Not if I've trusted in God's grace. Grace means I can know that one day I'll see Jesus face to face. And that means that I can know because of grace, I don't need to be afraid of God today. I can go to church Serve in ministry. Take communion. I can, I can cry out in my prayer closet. I can worship him in the street. I, 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 knowing I don't stand before him on the basis of what I've done. Not today, not at the great white throne judgment, not ever. One day I hope to be rewarded on the basis of what I've done. But my relationship with God and my righteousness before God is a function of what Jesus did. And that relationship might get closer or more distant, but it can never be in doubt. The prodigal son was distant from the father for a season. He never stopped being a son. If we've called upon the name Jesus and trusted in his grace, God never stops being our father. And because he's our father, let's keep moving. 
because he's a good father who's asked us to trust him, he asks us to let him bless us with provision and direction and wisdom and giving and purpose and peace. We talked about that last week. One of the hardest things to trust him for is justice. Who needs to pay and when will they pay and how will they pay and will they know why they're paying and will they pay enough? Leave that to me, says God. Just forgive. I've got the rest. And if grace is enough, we can. Our flesh doesn't like it. Our flesh says, but, and God says, no, no, no. Except, no, I've got it, God insists. I know more about it than you do, God says. I know what it is to be hurt. I know your hurt. I know more about your hurt than you know about your hurt. And believe it or not, I care about it more than you do. God tells us, I'm deeply interested in justice. I'll carry it out better than you ever will. So open your hand. Relax relax your grip. Spread your fingers. And let me take that burning need for vengeance away from you. All you need to do is forgive. But what if I forgive them and they see me forgiving them and they don't understand why I'm forgiving them? So they ask, why are you forgiving me? And I tell them it's because I'm a Christian. And then they want to be Christians. And then you'll forgive them, God. You'll forgive them and they'll never pay. Oh, like you, God says. How liberating it is when we can stand on the other side of that. What a What rest we discover when we stop hitting ourselves in the head waiting for the other person to die. And doubly so when the other person is us. Grace doesn't just mean we get to forgive others. Grace means we get to forgive ourselves. Actually, that's not completely true. Grace grace means that we realize we don't need to forgive ourselves because Jesus paid it all. We might have consequences of our sin to deal with. Financial consequences, physical, criminal, relational. But if we're in Christ, if we've trusted in his grace, the sin itself is gone. We don't need to pay anything for it. We might owe money. We might owe someone an apology. We might owe some prison time. But we don't have to pay anything to regain our righteousness because we didn't pay for it to begin with. We don't need to pay for it by beating ourselves up, by punishing ourselves for what we did, or punishing ourselves for what someone did to us. No amount of penance, whether whether that's sorrow or prayer or exile or ministry, no amount of self-punishment of any kind can wash away our guilt, can eliminate our shame. But we don't need it to because in Christ there is no guilt and there is no shame. Grace has taken it away and replaced it with an opportunity, an opportunity to worship the God of grace, an opportunity to thank him and praise him and serve him and tell people about him, to tell people how they can know him and receive grace from him. Grace has given us an opportunity to relinquish the spotlight to him because it turns out that's not where the joy is. And it never was. Joy comes when we step off the stage and hand the starring role over to Jesus and let his story be the story of our lives. Lord, teach us to do that. As flesh wars against spirit, as 
law asserts itself against grace. Remind us of what is true. Remind us who is true. Remind us of the mercy that we have enjoyed. We've tasted and seen that you're so good. Remind us of that. Help us, Lord, through your spirit, through your church, through your word. Help us to remember grace and to cling to it.